the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And um, we didn't uh, cover all of this ground with Ryan Anderson earlier in the program, so let's cover it here. And uh, let's lean on uh, a colleague of his at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Mary Rice Hassan. She's an attorney. We've spoken with her before. She writes on the uh, Equality Act, so-called Equality Act. Make no mistake, if the Equality Act becomes law, children in every public school in America will be sold on a cult concept of the human person, that who we are is self-defined by feelings, regardless of biological sex. Female students will be forced into silence or required to celebrate. When yesterday's male classmate announces he identifies as a girl and demands to shower in the girl's locker room, compete against her in sports, and claim for himself the hard-won rights of women, the Equality Act is nothing short of a Pandora's box, which, once opened, will unleash damaging consequences impossible to undo. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, for those who subscribe to that position, myself included, uh, you're running into more and more resistance, not just because of the disposition of the cultural elites in charge of all of these civic and cultural institutions in America, including pre-K through post-secondary education, but also the increasing identification. One in six Gen Z Americans identify as LGBT, the highest rate ever recorded. One in six Gen Z Americans, one in 15 overall, 5.6% of all U.S. adults over 18 identify as LGBT, according to a Gallup survey. Why such a exponential increase in a very uh, short period of time? And what are the implications to explore that, to help us explore that? We're pleased to be joined by Paul Nathanson, who is a gender history and religious studies professor. Uh, Paul Nathanson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, well, first, first, your reaction to uh, Mary Rice Hassan's characterization of the Equality Act and the, the implications were it to become the law of the land. I think it's a problematic legislation, I must say, for the reasons that you cited. First of all, it would have a negative impact, I think, on women, girls and women. I'm not a feminist, but I agree with them on that. Secondly, I think that it focuses attention on people as emotional beings, but not thinking beings. So there's an inherently anti-intellectual substratum to this. Now, I think the figures, the 16%, I think is inflated, not necessarily purposely, but I think that it, it hides the fact that more and more people, especially young people, are attracted to the idea that they can be whatever they want to be, regardless of their biological sex. And I think that's just not true. So I, I think there's, there are problems here. Enacting into law an idea that is really not an idea but a feeling. 
you, you talk about those numbers being inflated. Um, I, I don't know that that would be a surprise to, to anybody who's followed this. I mean, I know there was a Gallup survey a few years back asking, uh, you know, a representative sample of Americans to identify the percentage of people they thought were LGBT in America. And the median response was 25 percent. Obviously, that's exponentially more than than even this inflated serve these inflated survey results. And, and it speaks to the point that what is ubiquitous becomes overrepresented in in the layman's mind. And so that's what's happened in America. It's become ubiquitous. And so people think it's more prevalent than it actually is. Well, one problem is that there has always been a very small minority of people who are born with genetic anomalies. You know, even the ancient Greeks talked about hermaphrodites, people who are born with the genitalia, both male and female. So there have always been some people who are simply born with ambiguous characteristics. Mm -hmm. There are also... Uh, a small minority of people who have something that is called gender dysphoria, that is an inability, for whatever reason, to identify themselves comfortably with their biological sex. And I'm not saying assigned sex, because sex is not assigned. It is a birth, it's a characteristic of the fetus right from the beginning. Now, the other another phenomenon is is called oh, I forget what it's called now, but it's um, it occurs in not in, in not in childhood, which is what gender dysphoria occurs in. It takes place later in the teen years, for some reason more among girls than boys, um, and it happens in in a context of contagion. Let's hold it right there, and I want to come back after the break. I want to come back and and uh, take take up that point because it uh, speaks to some. Research at Brown University uh, from a year or so ago that was essentially quashed by raising this very issue you're raising. More with Paul Nathanson, gender history and religious studies professor, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Paul Nathanson, gender history and religious studies professor and uh, the author of uh, much scholarship in this area. Uh, he, uh, I, w- I wanted to, to pick up on this uh, topic we were discussing just before the break by hearkening uh, back to. This a Brown University study by an assistant professor there named Lisa Littman. This is uh, a couple of years ago. I think I said it was last year, but it actually dates back to 2018. Uh, professor Littman, per her research, uh, suggested that gender dysphoria, or a conflict between one's gender identity and biological sex, occurring at the time of puberty as opposed to early childhood, could be due could be due to peer pressure or online influences. Uh, this. Um, was ultimately removed by Brown University representatives because of, quote-unquote, concern over the study's research methodology, which actually really turned out to be concern over the research's uh, uh, contingent conclusions. And uh, Professor Nathanson, you were talking before the break about this social contagion aspect to identifying as LGBTQ, uh, particularly among younger people, Gen Zers, 
and um, you know how much of this is people looking for an identity in life, clinging to an identity as an LGBTQ person because this is a designation that is now celebrated and perhaps even comes with uh, benefits conferred by the state. Well, yes. I don't know that teenagers are very much aware of benefits from the state, but they're certainly aware of not even peer pressure, just it's a thing. It's new, it's exciting, it might solve all sorts of problems that can't be solved any other way, or at least not obviously. So there are many reasons why people might find this attractive. Um, Very often, I can't say always, but very often they turn out to be gay. And being gay is, I know this from my own personal experience, is something that is even less publicly acceptable than being trans, for example. Being trans is something of the moment. It's today. It's liberation and freedom and all these nice words. Being gay is just... And, you know, the argument for being gay and being trans is quite different. Gay people argue that they are gay simply because that's the way they're born. In other words, they're making essentially a biological argument. I don't know that it's ever been demonstrated conclusively, but they're but that is the argument, whereas trans people are using another argument entirely. They're, they're saying we don't care about biological sex. We're interested only in gender, which is a cultural construct, as they say, and therefore can be whatever we want it to be. So I think that, you know, but the fact is that human beings always live, must always live within both nature and culture. So part of us is nature biological givens. We have either two X chromosomes or an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. That's a given of nature. That's not culture. But we develop notions of masculinity and femininity, which of course, which really are cultural, and they usually are related somehow or other to biological needs of the community, uh, but they vary from one culture to another and from one period to another. So I think that the the use of the word gender, which is becoming synonymous with sex, is an, is another problem because they're, the two are quite different. I wanted to um, have you uh, develop a, a topic area that you've written extensively about, a number of books, Spreading Misandry, Legalizing Misandry, Replacing Misandry, Sanctifying Misandry, uh, all of this uh, obviously in the direction of uh, of a culture that is that that uh, has contempt for men uh, you know transcending transcending race and and every other demographic except for biological sex and um how pronounced do you think this problem of teaching c- contempt for men is i think it's a major problem it's one of the one of the major problems first of all let me just say that misandry does not um exist alone it is it is the, the sexist counterpart of misogyny, and both phenomena are out there expressed differently. Misogyny is monitored very carefully by countless organizations and government offices. Misandry is not, because it's not considered politically correct to even acknowledge its existence, but it, it does exist. And it's, you know, the, the manifestation, the expression of it, the evidence for it, would, would include uh, the soaring rate of suicide among men, the soaring rate of dropping out of school. A lot of these guys are are just giving up because they see no way 
to establish themselves, to establish a healthy identity as men in a society that seemingly has no room for men. I think the best that uh, men see around them is that at best they are, if they convert to feminism, then they can be token women or honorary women. But the notion that society needs them specifically as men by virtue of having male bodies, that is very tenuous at this point for, for a number of sociological and economic and political reasons, um, most of which have nothing to do with feminism. Feminism has exacerbated the problem in some ways, but um, in the misandry books, we trace it all the way back to the beginning of the agricultural revolution about 10 to 12,000 years ago. So there's a long series of cultural and technological changes that have influenced our understanding of the male body and its ability to contribute uh, something to society. And so the heart of the theories that I have written about is that in order to have a healthy identity for anybody, whether personal or collective, there has to be at least one way that you can contribute to society that is A, distinctive, and B, necessary, and C, publicly valued. And if one of those three things is unattainable, then you do not, you cannot have a healthy identity. And the result of that, of course, is for in many cases that people either give up or they turn against society. Mm. So there's a so this is a very real problem. It's a it's a major problem, and somehow it doesn't get any press. It doesn't it doesn't get any interest from journalists because well for for all sorts of reasons. He is Paul Nathanson, gender history and religious studies professor, author of a number of books, as we were just discussing: spreading misandry, legalizing misandry, replacing misandry, and sanctifying misandry. Paul Nathanson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.